Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast and our conversation series. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different over the next few conversations. We're going to do just kind of a little mini series. Um, and what prompted this was uh, quite a few conversations back. I don't remember which one. There was a group of us and we were recording and <clears throat> um, somewhere in the conversation we got to talking about shame and uh, things were being said here and there. And like I do, I just will off the cuff make these statements. Um, and I said, oh yeah, shame can be a good thing. And, and then the conversation went on. I didn't elaborate on what I meant. I didn't elaborate on what I was thinking. And later, after we had concluded the, that recording of that conversation, Joshua, uh, Shua Randall, our worship leader who was in that conversation, approached me. He's like, man, I just, I don't know. I was, I, I, how can shame be a good thing? And I actually almost didn't even remember that I had said it. And then I waxed eloquent there for a moment uh, and laid out like this kind of theological construct of shame that, you know, because Adam and Eve had disobeyed, in some sense, shame was the mark of their wrongdoing. That launched into this <laughs> months on end uh, conversation that we've been having with staff, with friends around this this thing, this thing that every single human experiences. It really is like a universal human experience. Yeah. We, no one can avoid it. No one does avoid it. I have a dear friend and he's a Hebrew language guy and he he's utterly convinced that the narrative in Genesis is saying that shame, shame is the default human emotion mm -hmm. uh, and that everything we're doing as humans is an overcompensation or a camouflaging or trying to control uh, our sense of shame. And so what we've decided to do is, is fully recognize we are not clinically trained counselors or therapists. Um, we are not shame researchers. Um, we're just humans experiencing the same thing as you. And so we have tried actually to record a number of these conversations in different formats with different kind of layouts. And every time I think shame has been involved in those conversations. <laughs> and so we've actually been uncomfortable. So we've tossed them into the trash pile. And what we've landed on doing instead is just a short little series of conversations with people that we're really close to in much more of a story format. Rather than trying to tackle just the ginormous and utterly complex issues of shame, we really have landed on just dialing in individual stories. And the goal is for us to, to highlight that you are not alone. Mm -hmm. That just by listening to the stories of people that come from different backgrounds, come from different cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, um, you can hear and identify and realize, oh, wow, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. I'm not separated. You're actually very much one with the human experience. And, and then we're also trying to share how we're navigating the shame narratives from our own, our own personal lives. So for this conversation with my wife and the next two conversations, that's going to be the thrust uh, of our topic. Shame. 
here we go, guys. <laughs> this is going to be great. You know, it could be really helpful just to start this conversation off with um, highlighting the difference between shame and guilt. Um, I think sometimes um, guilt and shame can can be confused with one another. And so guilt is a feeling that we all experience. We've all experienced it where we feel remorse um, or responsible for something we've done wrong or that we even perceived we did wrong. And it can be, you know, an action that, you know, where we make a mistake or we commit an offense or we hurt someone, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. Whereas shame is this feeling that we are bad. We as a, as people, as humans, we are wrong. There's something intrinsically wrong with us. We're, you know, we're not worth anything. Um, we're inadequate. And so it's relating our behavior um, often to, to other people's opinions of us, um, but it's not necessarily about like a specific event or situation that's happened or behavior, you know, yeah. what we've done wrong. Yeah. Shame is, it's just such a complex emotion. Lex, how do you actually, if you were going to describe how you experience shame in your body, what do you experience? Because it's very helpful to try to put titles to or descriptions of what happens in the human body with certain emotions that are so nebulous as shame. Mm -hmm. I know for me, I experience shame, um, very physically actually, um, in my chest, um, as well as in my gut, um, just this sense of like doom. That's the only way I can describe mm. it, just doom. And especially this feeling of it's so out of my control, there's nothing I can do to fix it. Um, and so then I find my brain as well obsesses over it. And it's like my my mind and my brain just start going over and over and over um, you know, a situation where I, I'm feeling shame. I'm feeling that sense of separateness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Actually, like, I can't remember which book it, it was that you were reading several years back, but it talk, it describes shame as, as, you know, say, for instance, you're at this canyon and the person who feels shame is on one side of the canyon mm -hmm. and everyone else is on the other side of the canyon. And there's like, you feel the sense that there's no way to get to the other side. You're sense completely separate. Separation, so mm -hmm. isolation, mm -hmm. loneliness, embarrassment. Yep. Yeah, I have this hilarious story that I can feel shame in my body. We were in <laughs> Seattle and we had gone to a karaoke bar with some friends and the couple we were with, the gal, the, she got up and she like did this unbelievable version of the Garth Brooks song, you know, ain't going home till the sun goes down. Or I don't she, even know. She nailed this. Yeah. She, this is like the best karaoke I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I don't even know what the lyrics were. Like she just, she, the entire bar was out on the dance floor cheering for Katie. And the whole while my wife is like kind of tapping me on the knee, tapping me on the knee. Like you need to go out there. You can do this. Well guys, I do have a little bit of a confession. So in my mind, Dan is like more bold and willing to put himself out there than I am. And so sometimes I vicariously live through Dan by like trying to push him into doing things. And this was for sure one of those situations where it was like, I wasn't going to be caught dead 
performing at this karaoke bar, but I was certain Dan could do it so well. And so I gave him a, a yeah. loving so, push. Okay. So this is how the Which shame, has now become yeah. a shameful experience. Totally. So my wife, my wife handles shame by fleeing from it. I, I run headlong into it. <laughs> and so I get up there and I'm like, okay, well, I love Ice Ice Baby and I can crush that, right? Because, you know, I do Ice Ice Baby all the time for my kids. And I got up there and I don't know what happened. I just, I remember beginning to have this sensation in my body, like almost like an out-of-body experience because the words and the music didn't seem to line up. You guys have no clue what an amazing rapper Vanilla Ice was <laughs> because it was so hard to actually rap in the beat with the tune. And pretty soon as I was watching people separate, it was like the canyon was being created between me and the stage. And I was all alone. My body was overheating. I, I don't get embarrassed very often. And I was feeling this horrific embarrassment. I can feel it in my body right now. By the end of Ice Ice Baby... Uh, it was literally just Katie and Emil, the couple that we were with, and my wife just cheering me on. Everybody <laughs> else had either gone back to their drinks at their tables or literally left the bar. And so there it is. Isolation, embarrassment, humiliation, shame. We all have over and over and over these, these moments that we experience, and they really do. I mean, I'm telling a silly story. But the sensation of shame is so prevalent. It's so ubiquitous. It's so common. It shapes every one of our narratives. And it's driving us. It's driving us in everything that we do. Um, there is a new kind of, I don't know, research community, psychological community. They're really doing tremendous work in this. So, of course, Brene Brown, she is like the shame guru. She describes shame as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. One of my favorite authors on the topic of shame, and I really can't recommend him enough, is um, Kurt Thompson. And he studies this, this concept of shame from the neurobiological level. So he's looking at the actual chemistry of what's happening in the brain and the body when we experience shame, but he's also a devout Christian. And he is convinced that from the Genesis narrative where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed and then the devil got involved in the whole situation, deceived them, they disobeyed, and suddenly they were ashamed and covered themselves, Kurt Thompson argues that shame is a, an agent of the enemy, of the devil, to destroy us. Let me read you this quote. Thompson says, If you look at the, psych the psychology literature, shame is understood as an artifact of nature. It just happens to be something that we experience. We don't like it, but there's not much we can do about it other than regulate it. But if you read the biblical narrative, it would suggest that shame's actually not just an artifact. It's a vector. It's something that evil is actively and intentionally using to disintegrate, to disintegrate the universe and to devour it. Mm -hmm. There is an intention behind it. And so shame is attacking you, friend. And uh, we think that this is, is maybe one of the more important conversation topics that we've ever done because it's driving us. Shame forms our identity. Shame shapes the way that we relate to one another. Shame shapes uh, the way that we interpret the world around us. 
And really shame is so connected to our identity. Um, you know, as we made that distinction of guilt and shame, with shame, it, it goes after our identity as, especially as, as Christians, we are, and I mean, moving apart from setting aside, just being a Christian, just like humans, image bearers created in God's image. Um, shame goes after our identity. What you guys are going to hear in every one of these conversations is exactly what my wife is saying. Uh, and the the brothers that we're going to be hanging out with and and talking with, they're each going to be reflecting on how, at their core identity, to find healing, they've had to come back to who they actually are in Jesus. And that's what the Hebrew sages were saying with the Hebrew narrative in Genesis one through three. When Adam and Eve, Adam, that is you know dirt, that's literally what Adam means, Adam. The Hebrew word Adam is dirt or earth. And uh, Eva, source of life, Eve, the Hebrews were saying that those first expressions of humanity were unashamed. They were pure. Mm-hmm. They, they, they experienced themselves as nothing being wrong. There was no conflict. There was no comparison. There was no fleeing, no camouflaging, no masking. And they definitely depict the fall of humanity as... Uh, the devil attacking via the lie that you cannot be fully yourself. You have to be something more than what you are. And when you're not, then shame is what is what we experience. Mm-hmm. And so let's just turn the corner here a little bit and talk personally. Um, babe, how have you experienced shame in your life? What are the points of shame that you've experienced and how are they, how have they shaped you as an adult now? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge question. And obviously, you know, I've had several experiences, more experiences than I count, than I can, you know, count um, that have shaped me that have come from a place of, um, you know, deep woundedness that led to shame. But you know, one thing I can specifically um, think of just from an early point in my life was, you know, I my parents divorced when I was one years old. I have literally no recollection of my parents being together. Um, and both of my parents, you know, my mom has been saved since, and she's an incredible woman, an English professor. But when my parents got married, they were high on heroin and, um, you know, really living a crazy life. And so, which is just, it's your, your, even your generational, I mean, it's just laced with sin, uh, with sin and shame. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's shameful even to say that out loud in sophisticated culture, right? Right. And so, you know, being born into a home where it's such, you know, such brokenness already there. Um, and then, you know, fast forward a little bit, um, when I was in elementary school, right around first or second grade, actually, um, my mom at that point, single mom, working a graveyard shift at the juvenile detention center, you know, just got saved. Um, she started sending my sister and I to this private Christian school. And, you know, we were there in many ways on charity. We were, we received scholarships, um, to be able to go there, um, but 
being in this context of this Christian school while also coming from such brokenness, instantly there was this sense of, oh, I'm, again, going back to the canyon analogy, I'm on this side of the canyon and everyone's over there and there's no way I'm going to get over there because I am, like, who I am and who I come from is wrong. Um, And so, you know, that significantly shaped me. We were... For a long time when I lived with my dad, we were incredibly poor. And, you know, oftentimes I'd go to school with maybe some mashed potatoes for lunch, um, leftover mashed potatoes. Um, So I can actually remember very distinctly on several occasions at lunchtime, you know, it's time to eat. All my friends have these like incredible lunches with like Capri Suns and granola bars and fruit snacks. And, you know, as a kid, you see that and you're just like, whoa, that looks so incredible. They have cookies and like all these things. You're like, I want that. And here I have my like cold mashed potatoes. And so like most kids, I would be like, hey, can I have that? Can I have that cookie or whatever? And um, that would annoy my friends. And again, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Like having kids now, um, it's just so clear. You're like, oh, I want to partake in that. And you don't have that. And so you don't feel the sense of, I can't ask for it. But quickly, as you ask for it, you start to see like, no, you are not to ask for this. And so then that creates a narrative of, again, being wrong. It's like, oh, I, I can't be doing that. And again, they are this and I am this and I'm wrong. Mm. Um, I can actually remember, even as an adult and having gone through counseling and talked about a lot of my childhood, uh, one of my friends from elementary school, who I, she honestly, I probably asked her the most because she was so kind, but I'd ask her the most to share her lunch with me. And I remember she brought it up. Actually, I think her husband maybe mentioned it, but it was crazy. Just like brought it up. Yeah, just brought it room. up in passing. Like, like I remember this like, happening. Oh, Lexi, everyone called me Lexi when I was little. Lexi always used to ask for like my lunch. And I felt even as an adult when they brought it up, like, oh my gosh. The like trauma is just so terrible. embarrassed and just like, dang it. And like I don't that's not me. And I wanted to like again, almost like Adam and Eve. You inst- I instantly want to put up like the fig leaves and be like, yeah, but that's not who I am now. And like, look, I do actually like have some money now and I'm not poor and I eat good food. And it was just like this sense of like wanting to be somebody all over what I packed a for memory. lunch as a little kid. Um, so that was definitely, and like I said, there's been experiences in my life, but that really shaped me as a young person. And, um, you know, even things like my dad smoked and so I always smelled like cigarettes and, you know, I had clothes that weren't cute and my friends would come to private school and their moms had done their hair and put cute bows in it. And I just, that, there was always just this sense of you're wrong and you're never going to be, you're almost like kind of what that, that quote from Brene Brown you know, that you mentioned just a little while ago, just this sense of that you're flawed and you have this painful feeling that you're not, you're not worthy of love and you don't belong. I think the tragedy of shame is the manifestation of shame in children 
at such a young age. You know, my wife in her in her childness couldn't be anything but what she was. And um, the structures around her and the system around her that honestly have been developed by millennia of satanic influence in the human soul exacerbated the shame. Can you just flesh that out? What do you mean by satanic influence? I mean that St. Paul talks about the powers and principalities of this world and that um, the human flesh is actually governed by the deceptions of Satan since the fall in the garden. And I, I just don't think that we have enough recognition that that is actually at play, that Satan designs systems through fallen human flesh and the fallen psyche to create these standards of worth. So there are winners and there are losers. Mm-hmm. There are poor people and there are rich people. It's, it is a, there are black people and white people. There are this side of the tracks, that side of the tracks. There are people that look like this, people that look like that, beautiful and ugly. In every facet of the human experience, the satanic regime that runs the systems of the world multiplies the shame of the garden 20 times over. Mm-hmm. And I think the great pain of the human experience is, is for children. And this is why we both are big proponents of therapy. We think therapy is one of the most helpful tools to sit with a trained clinician and, um, and explore these memories. Because these, these traumatic events, these traumatic moments, they consciously and they unconsciously form the way that we think about and react in our lives. Like my wife is, is an adult now and does not smell like cigarettes ever <laughs> um, and, and is tremendously nutritious in the food that we eat. And It's yet, interesting though. In a moment, in that yeah. moment of memory, suddenly it's like you're six years old again, reliving the trauma. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because you see how shame shapes you. So just as our identity as loved children shapes us, this shame narrative, so just from this one little portion of my life, I can see how much through teenage years into my 20s, having kids, getting married, how much it's shaped the way I do things. And in many ways, um, it's also been an area that I've had to repent of the most where this sense of um, control. Um, So, you know, we talk again about how we fig leaf things. Yeah, the fig leaf comes from the Genesis narrative where Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve, it's like they're they're no longer experiencing themselves as, as naked, seen by God, seen by each other without shame. Suddenly they're, they're seen, they're totally exposed and vulnerable. And so the, the narrative tells us that they hid themselves first and then they covered themselves with fig leaves, which I believe is like maybe literal, but also for sure Hebrew metaphor for the way that we compensate for shame. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say, and I, maybe you should just consider this, dear listener, that... Almost all of our behaviors, when you distill them down, almost all of our decisions are decisions and behaviors that we have unconsciously designed to cover ourselves. Mm -hmm. Success is a way to cover ourselves. Uh, Bravado is a way to cover insecurity. 
Um, looks is a way to cover a sense of feeling ugly. Um, relationships are a way, they are a, a fig leaf that we use to cover our sense of isolation. Um, and so this amplifies out, again, as I said, where Satan uses shame as a vector, as, a, as an agent of multiplying this insidious pollution into the human psyche and experience. Satan multiplies that out to the point where you get humans warring with one another. Shame drives war. We must overcompensate and control and crush the other because we're vulnerable. We have to keep everything in its place. And so it's such a fascinating thing that it's, we think it's just this small, well, I was embarrassed about this thing in my life, when it is such a massive shaping reality. I remember so clearly, especially after having kids, where I started to see just how much that area of my life was, you know, manifesting itself through trying to control things. So, you know, when we had kids, just my intensity for our kids to dress a certain way to even their pajamas had to be matching. Like I hated the idea of them just wearing like an old t-shirt to bed. Like I wanted them everything to be cute and I wanted it to be matching. And then as you parents know, you have kids, they start to develop personalities and they want to wear dad's old t-shirt or whatever. And I just started to realize like, wow, you know, in clear down to like what my kids are wearing to bed, I just have this sense of like, I want to control it because I wanted their experience to not be what I experienced. I wanted them to have the things that I didn't have. And that became a point where I had to repent and I had to start recognizing, okay, what's, what is driving me? Why is this thing that I experienced my life in my life driving me to such points where I'm actually going to, you know, give my, <laughs> give my kids like troubles, honestly, in their life too, um, because of my own experience. And so, you know, that's a small way where I feel like I'd fig leaf it, but it, man it manifested, manifested itself in my life where it was like, oh, trying to control. And then just always an overwhelming insecurity. And so how that play out in friendships was just maybe at times like being too much because you just were so, I was so desperate to have that sense of belonging and like, yes, you know, we're good friends. And so it'd be like, too much smothering or just, it was like, I couldn't ever find the balance of just being Alexis and confident in who Alexis was. But I felt like I was literally at the whim of people's opinions of me and fear of man's been a huge thing in my life that has just taken a lot of, um, just prayerful submission, honestly, to the Lord where I've had to, I've had to die to that, um, need to know that people affirm me. So help me understand this. I've told you this. We've been married for 20 years in September. Um, I married you for so many different reasons. I knew you were going to be my wife. But one of the things that to this day I'm still smitten with, though I think mm -hmm. it's thickened and evolved, matured, matured mm -hmm. was you have this joy, a joy that I just, I didn't have a category for it. Uh, I, I just didn't have a category for the level of intense joy 
And to this day, when you, when I really am doing something dumb and you're really cracking up, I just, it's like, this is, yes, this is, <laughs> this is the joy. And also, honey, you are such a woman of elegance and I don't know, sophistication. Like you've, you, you have our, our children in our home in a place, not of rigid Victorian control, <laughs> But there's just a level of maturity and maturity. If you're truly mature, you say it, mature. Um, uh, how, how, when I met you 20 years ago, how, where was that joy sourced? Because I know that's the truest you. And where was that elegance and that sophistication? Where did that come from? And how have you developed it? By not, I don't see it. It's not overcompensation mm-hmm. for shame it's not camouflaging it's not fake it's like who you are how have you allowed that to come forward more and more Mm -hmm. you know just as that private school was a huge part of my story in terms of shame it was also I thank God for that private school um, because it was really there having been in a broken home that I really started to learn um, about Jesus and it was a conservative Baptist school, and there were definitely some things that I disagree with now as an adult. Like you have to wear dresses knee length, and you have to wear tights. And you Joel, know, if Joel, you, told me, Joel told me in his conversation when we posted that he couldn't listen to music with drums. Yeah, like I remember <laughs> hearing at chapel one time, like if you went to the movies, you'd go to hell. Like not even joking, or yeah. listen to rock and roll. Like that's intense, and I don't agree with that. But. The Lord used that. And so I can remember many nights, um, you know, living with my dad, which was very intense with the drug use and everything that was happening there. I can remember so distinctly, you know, learning these little children's songs that were all about, you know, uh, one of the songs was called the color song. And it was all about like the different colors that represented specific things. So red was like the blood of Jesus poured out for you. Um, and just seeing those songs, these little worship songs, and it's like the you only like, one... You're upstairs singing to Jesus in your bed. Your dad is downstairs slamming dope. Yeah, and like, wow. and literally, you know, guys, <laughs> a lot happened at that home. And just um, literally it was like the spirit hovering over me in those moments and feeling the presence of God knowing this is the, this, I'm in the most safe place right now. And I was utterly scared. I'd have the blankets over my head. Like I'd be wrapped up like a little mummy. Cause in my mind, I'm like, okay, I got to protect myself. Cause there's danger here. Vulnerability. Yeah. Isolation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. Like I literally couldn't sleep without putting the blanket over my head when I lived at my dad's house. And, but still having those songs where it was like, I'm singing these songs about Jesus. And like I said, feeling like the spirit just hovering over me, finding this peace. So that being said, though I had these things in my life where I felt insecure and I felt um, broken, just broken, I also had Jesus. And I knew when it really all got distilled down, even if I didn't have approval from people and I felt like a complete outsider, I really did know Jesus is all I have. And especially seeing the brokenness in my family and seeing just the pain um, and the different trajectories that each of my family members kind of went down, I knew 
Jesus was all I had. And so that joy that you talk about, I, I truly believe that that was just like this faith and trust in Jesus that like he was all I had. And I, to this day, like things can be spiraling out in my life. And when I just take a moment and I really distill things down, it's like, but I have Jesus. And even if everything is ruined and wrecked, in this life, and I end up with no one, which is like my worst fear. I have Jesus. That is the gospel. That is the gospel remedy for shame. And it takes great courage. My wife has done the hard work and continues to do the hard work, laboring through the memories of trauma, reconciling a broken world, reconciling a, a broken system that really was used by the enemy to diminish her soul. And yet what Jesus does when he gets a hold of a person and becomes that person's center is he amplifies the truth of that soul. So the joy, the elegance, uh, uh, the beauty of my wife is amplified. It's like the fig leaves come off and the truest parts, the truest Alexis shines forth. I do have one other curious question, hun. So much of healing for shame takes place in in community, like real tangible community. Um, Joel at one point has said to me a long time ago that it's one thing to have Jesus in his presence. It's another thing to have Jesus's presence in the hand of another, like just a friend with you. Mm-hmm. Um, how much do you sense that like Claire and Ron gave you a sense of stability and a, a space for this to grow? Mm-hmm. Well, just for you guys to know, Claire and Ron are my grandparents, and and my grandfather passed back in 2012, and my grandma's hanging on by a thread right now. But um, yeah, my grandparents were used um, in a massive way in my life. My grandma's actually the one who led me to Jesus, and um, almost like that private Christian school, um, my grandma was just this um, woman who was constantly um, bringing me to these sacred places and giving, opening up these doors to have sacred moments um, with Jesus and teaching me. She honestly taught me um, dependence on Jesus through prayer. Um, and so my grandparents were huge. I mean, I would say particularly my grandma was maybe one of the most influential people in my life. I mean, beyond you and our kids. Yeah, I think the reason that I that I ask it and that I bring up Claire um, is because Claire, like every other human, um, has her own shame narratives. She was dealing with her own shame stories in her mm-hmm. in her personal life, but part of her, I think, I believe, Claire's healing and Jesusness was to to provide that place for uh, her granddaughter. And I think for you, dear listener, there may, there, may, there, there may be people in your life right now that part of your, um, part of the true you is becoming one of those people who provides that safe place, who leads somebody, who guards somebody in their shame narrative mm-hmm. um, and protects them and provides a place for them to be truly themselves. I know for me in my life, that's actually been a mark of, of grace in the working of the Spirit is um, 
things that I experienced as a young person and just that um, longing for security, that longing to honestly be seen, um, you know, in my family, so much of the circumstances created a sense of just not being seen. And everything I did was actually to avoid disruption, avoid causing more disruption to the family unit. And so it was just, if I could just kind of skate by and not be seen. But the fact is like, as humans, we want to be seen and we want to be known and we want to be heard and cared for. And so one of the the marks of growth in my own life is, this may sound kind of weird, but it's like, when I have people tell me, Alexis, I feel so seen by you. And it's like, oh, I can be in a church gathering and not even talk to you that morning, but you'll look at me and you have this sense of, are you doing okay? And you check in, you follow up with me. Um, and I feel so seen by you. That's always to me this moment where I feel such celebration. Because it's kind of a running joke in our church community. People avoid Lex if they're at all, if they're at all <laughs> yeah, upset they're like, because... Yeah, stay away from her. Don't let her see my one, face. Yeah, it takes one look and then Lex brings them to tears. <laughs> <laughs> but all that to say, I do celebrate that because I think, again, it's one of those areas where I've seen like my own story has influenced the way I care for people and I love people. And um, I find such joy in a person saying, I feel seen by you and I feel heard by you. That's our intent in this series is that you, you feel seen and heard, even though we can't see you and you can't see us, but you, you hear humans expressing the anguish, the anguish of a broken human experience that you have experienced as well. Mm-hmm. And what we want you to hear in these stories is that the centerpiece of, of healing is Jesus. It is a wholesale letting go of the fig leaves and a commitment to um, to let die what Paul called the old man, <laughs> that fabricated self that compensates and is controlling and is camouflaging the deepest parts of yourself. And the more deeply intimate you are with Jesus, the more able you are able to enter into uh, intimacy with other people. Because at the end of the day... Um, the opposite of shame is intimacy. Yes. This Joel and I just finished recording our conversation, and this came up, and you'll hear it later in that conversation, but intimacy with other humans is the opposite of shame. And intimacy is, is so vulnerable. Um, yep, that being known, like truly being, known. Being actually known where you can be rejected. And mm-hmm. so the work of healing shame is a courageous work. It's a work of intentionality. It's a work of pressing in. It's a work of resting and receiving, and um, it's a lifelong work. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, we are t- we we each are going to be dealing with the patterns that shame has shaped in us, really until the day we die. But the onion layers are always going to be being peeled away. Mm-hmm. So we really are, uh, as a team, uh, those of us that do this podcast, for this next few sessions, we really are praying for you. We really are praying that you hear a voice from afar saying, you are so, so loved for who you are and to embrace your loved self today, to, to express that lovedness to another human and to, to not fear that in your brokenness and in, and in your shame, you're going to do wrong in the world. It's actually by doing right in the world, even in your brokenness and in your shame, you create healing in the world, and Jesus has called us to know less. So we will be praying for you. We hope that these conversations shed light 
in your life and dispel some of the darkness to bring the light and the glory of the kingdom to bear. And really, guys, at the end of it, we just want you to know that you're not alone. This is a human experience, and all of us have stories, and all of us, no matter the most perfect home you could have come from, we all have things that have shaped us in ways that are difficult. And being known and hearing other people's stories and hearing redemption and hearing how God is working just lets us all know we're on this journey together. And so today, even with the little bit of my story I shared, it's our prayer that you feel seen and heard and known. Shalom, friends. Shalom. Shalom.